We've no less days to sing your praise, O Lord, than when we first begun and we began our walk in faith, O Lord. We ask you to be with us this morning as we honor you in this worship service, that you would be glorified in heaven and your saints would be edified in the earth. Amen. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs once, once again. The book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 this morning, I'll be reading and commenting on. So open there with me at this time. And so Solomon writes, Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than profits of silver, and her grain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies. And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. And I'll read just the next two verses. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. But his knowledge, by his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down like dew. Oh, Father, we praise you for the wisdom of your word and for the creation that is the product of your wisdom and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So happy is the man who finds wisdom. I suppose we could conclude, if you're not a happy man today, perhaps you're not a wise man. And the man who finds understanding, so you've got that couplet thing going. In this, in this sense, wisdom and understanding are essentially the same thing. Well, understanding of what? The true questions of life. The things that come to us in our final moments, perhaps, things that I'll bring out today, I hope, as the, um, as the message progresses. But we ended last week with this verse. If you, if you remember, we talked about happiness. Um, we spoke of the many benefits of godly wisdom in the, in the previous passages. The passage enumerated health as a benefit of godly wisdom. A sense of well-being was a particular benefit of wisdom. We read that a wise man's barns are filled with plenty and his vats overflow with new wine. I asked you last week if you have barns, and if not, if you have vats. Do you know what a vat is? You know, I actually looked up vat. You know what it is? It's a value-added tax. (laughs) That's what it said. But um, vats were big tubs or tanks that they would keep beverages in, most especially wine. It wasn't like the ancient Israelites had as many beverage choices as we have. Um, But it talked about all these things. This material blessing was the product of of a man's wisdom. There was mention of a sense of relationship with God as a benefit also to wisdom, as a child to a father, and a recognition of that relationship You see, 
the pagan world, and I hope to develop this as we go along, has some understanding of happiness and how a man attains it. But what they miss is the source. And the source is all important. A recognition of the source. Not only that he exists, but that he exists with his several attributes. Mercy being among them, the source of all gifts. If you're happy, that happiness comes from God, friends. And then finally, the writer spoke of of happiness. God would have his beloved be happy. Now, I'll try to get all the philosophical um, stuff out of the way and try to give a definition of happiness that goes along with our basic understanding of it. Sometimes we try to qualify and and define uh, too much, it seems to me. Common definitions of the word are probably reliable. The man on the street may not be able to tell you what happiness is, but I think he can tell you whether or not he is happy. He might not be able to put it into words, and so it's this sort of pedestrian sort of happiness that it seems to me is the perspicacious use of the word. In other words, when the Lord speaks of happiness, he enumerates the basic things people talk about between themselves when they speak of happiness. So common definitions of the word are reliable and genuinely, uh, generally agreeable. And as I said, the man on the street may not give you a cogent definition, but he he knows what it is when he experiences it, and he's probably experiencing the same good feelings, the same sense of satisfaction that it gives believers when we experience happy thoughts or happy occasions. Though the common man's pursuit of happiness would certainly differ from ours. In this sense... uh, It's this sense, rather, of satisfaction and contentment and a quiet inner rejoicing of soul that a person seeks. We may seek it in the Word of God. Others may seek it in simple human joys, and they do that because they don't know the Word of God. They don't feel they have access to it. Still others might seek happiness at the bottom of a bottle or from the medicine chest, but I'm convinced that the hope of finding it motivates us all. I think all men pursue happiness to some extent. Now, James, in his epistle, throws us a little curveball here when he opens his epistle with these words, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So there it is. Joy, happiness, it can be there when the outward accoutrements of it that we just spoke of may not be present with it. And so he alludes to this sort of higher form of happiness than the joy of the moment. He brings it all around to the sensation of being in God's will, of being in God's hand, even when things are particularly stressful or strenuous or challenging. The joy of the Lord does not depart from us at that time. So in Christ, even the struggle which adds discomfort and uncertainty rather to life, cannot quench the inner joy of redemption and adoption. We always have redemption. Once we've got it, we've got it. We're adopted. We'll always remain adopted. 
When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've just begun and we've just sang it. And so we have that joy that's connected with the knowledge that we are redeemed, even in the hard places, when we don't feel so happy, or when we feel grief, or when we're overwhelmed with grief. There's a sense of abiding joy and happiness that is present in us because of the wisdom that God has given us about himself. And certainly in Christ, the spirit that he gives us. Of course, this text doesn't speak to all of those facets of happiness as are unfolded uh, in other sections of the scripture. And so for purposes of today's discussion, I will stick to the point that the happiness spoken of in our verse is consistent with the common conception of happiness in most men. In most people. The scriptures speak of joy. They speak of gladness. If you look up happiness in the lexicon, it will, it will say joy. It will say gladness. It will say delight. The word used most often in the New Testament for happy is makarios. And it may be translated as either happy or blessed, as we've spoken of before. Some of the older versions use the word blessed in exchange for the word happy today. We're even told that God too, seeks and enjoys gladness of heart. Did you know that? You know, I read a whole book by Lorraine Bettner one time, and he's a theologian that I very much respect. And it was on the, uh, the nature of the man Christ. And because he's depicted in scriptures as a man of sorrows, Bettner, again, who I greatly respect, and, uh, and uh, I refer you to him to read, depicted the Christ of the New Testament as a very sorrowful man who perhaps never even laughed. I would have to take issue with that, wouldn't you? Yeah. I never got that, I never got that uh, impression as I read through it. Um, it seems, in some sense, he was one of the guys, hanging around, walking around the countryside. I mean, he was a man like other men. And there are certainly scriptures that speak of the happiness or the joy of the Lord. So the scriptures, um, as I say, they, they speak of joy, and um, God himself is said to seek and enjoy happiness or joy. Jesus said the same to his disciples in the Gospel of John when he said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. In other words, I have joy, I impart that joy to you. And that your joy may be full was his blessing. So the word for joy here, it's a different word. Then Macarius, it's kara, and its meaning is essentially the same as the former. That's joy or gladness or delight or things that make us feel good, satisfied, content, fulfilled, and thankful. And the Hebrew, of course, for happy in, in these verses is the word esher, and I am assured that its meaning is essentially the same. In other words, friends, happy means happy. And so God, who promises happiness to those who find wisdom, who think his thoughts after him, has provided the path to happiness. And so the elect, the children of God, have access to divinely inspired happiness. If you're happy today, it's a gift of God. and Thank him for it. And if you're not so happy tomorrow... Happiness is still in you, and it's still a gift of God, and thank Him for it then, too. And that's what James was talking about. If only we're wise enough to seek Him, friends, 
will have that happiness. If only we're dedicated enough to actually find him in the seeking. If only we're sincere enough to trust him. Trust in the Lord, he wrote, with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Now this was the theme from prior weeks uh, as we plowed through the book of Proverbs. And so we can see that it's this trust, friends. It's this sense of acknowledgement. This sense of reliance upon God. And the mistrust of our own spiritual resources that will get us there to this happy place. God, you know, it's interesting, the wording, happy is the man who finds wisdom. He's not saying the man of wisdom might find happiness or could find it if he used his wisdom properly. He says that the wisdom is the path to happiness. And so we have to trust in God and mistrust our own spiritual resources. Friends, it's the destination happiness, but it's also the journey for the Christian. It may not come as a life immersed in joyous enthusiasm in our every waking moment, as we would like, perhaps. It may not come uh, as a life spent in continuous bliss. I can almost promise you that will not be the case in your life. It's rather a life dedicated to a search for wisdom and the finding of answers to life's most essential questions. The wise man's life is a life of diligent labor, responsible dealings, and dedicated relationships. And that's what the balance of the book of Proverbs is really about. He sets us up in the beginning here with these passages, but as we go through, we have the Proverbs given to us in couplets, two-line poems that speak on really every aspect of life that add wisdom upon wisdom as we go through the book. And so the life of a wise man is rather sprinkled with glimpses of heavenly joy, than a life bathed in continuous joy. Biblical concepts of happiness are perhaps like the athlete's struggle. You know, when you're a preacher, you're always trying to find illustrations of the point to help us understand it. So I think of the athlete's struggle when I think of happiness. Remember the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat? Remember that? Friends, the athlete has to suffer through discipline, through tension, through stress and effort and sweat and muscle pain and even injury. But his mind and heart are set upon the goal. And that's what is the sense of happiness for the athlete, if you will. He may win the race, but he must be content to simply complete it with his honor and dignity of his effort intact. So happiness is a subject, friends, that has been considered by philosophers of every stripe and persuasion in every historical era. Happiness isn't just something that Christians sought. It's really the subject of much of philosophy, ancient and modern. There's perhaps more written on the subject of happiness and human contentment and purpose of life than anything else I can think of. I was talking with some of you this morning about the... the, uh, Classical philosophers and their views of happiness. In our nation's own founding documents, friends, we're told that the individual has an unalienable right to pursue happiness. And he shan't be hindered from doing so. 
And it's enshrined in our documents and in our laws and in our constitution. And so our founders, more concerned with opportunity than outcomes, that has shifted a bit of late, uh, they paved the way for every man to seek his own kind of happiness. And I'm not suggesting that there are many kinds, but I am suggesting that the right to a pursuit of happiness is to save us from some kind of amorphous, imposed state concept of happiness and have it thrust upon us. We're allowed to pursue it ourselves as Americans. So I thought you might like to hear the definitions of men throughout the ages. And so I'll start first with the Buddha, familiar with Gautama Buddha, who lived during the same period as Ezra and Nehemiah. And he was in China, or rather in India at the time. Confucius was in China. And uh, Socrates was in Greece at the time. It was, a, it was a great historical era for proliferation of philosophical schools of thought. And so the Buddha said, there's no path to happiness. Happiness is the path. I have not gagged much lately. <laughs> but I feel it coming on. I don't regard that. I regard that as, as, as uh, oriental confusion. Um, Socrates, I think, comes closer to the mark. The secret of happiness, you see, is, found in seeking, is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. Friends, the fewer things that make you happy, perhaps the happier you'll be. In other words, happiness is not in the accumulation of things, per se, but in the inner man's ability to make the most of the things that he has. I want to tell you, I went to some of the commentators. Matthew Henry essentially agrees with Socrates' assessment here. But I wonder if Socrates had read Solomon. You know, it's possible. It's not probable because of the geographic difference. But Solomon was already ancient wisdom in the time of, of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It was already very ancient. And by that time, the word of God could have circulated to, to Athens and other places around the globe. But consider this from Solomon's Meditations, a book of Ecclesiastes, where he writes, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. It's a man looking to satisfy himself and be happy. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. And I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for wind. There was no profit under the sun. In other words, friends, running around trying to grasp happiness in every perceived desire is not the path. And so it seems to me Socrates and Solomon were... Um, Sympatico there, to some extent. I can tell you that what he discovered is that a, a life spent on appeasing our carnal appetites is an empty life. Friend Solomon obviously was a man of appetites, seeking to fulfill our every perceived need and desire is is not the path to happiness prescribed in Scripture. Plato made this statement: the man who makes Everything that leads to happiness depend upon himself and not upon other men has adopted the very best plan for living happily. You know, I can give some credence to what he's saying. In other words, um, if someone else could make you 
happy, they can also make you sad. So why grant them that power? So I, I get that aspect of it. But note, for the pagan, self-sufficiency, which we come to this theme over and over again in ancient concepts of happiness, but the pagan mind, self-sufficiency is a denial of divine blessing. In other words, it's something that is in you to achieve. It's all about slathering blessings upon ourselves. It's, it, it amounts to a profane denial of the one true God as the source of all blessing. John Stuart Mill. I've learned to seek my happiness by limiting my desires rather than in attempting to satisfy them. Now, this comes closer to Paul's view of happiness, where Paul wrote very succinctly uh, to to, to Timothy, rather, godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with the things that you have, he said. There's an ancient Chinese oracle, Lao Tzu, perhaps the father of modern, modern Taoism, which I'm told is pronounced Taoism now. When I was a kid, it was Taoism. They change these things. And he sort of anticipates modern psychoanalysis. But I think there's some wisdom here. So listen to what he has to say. Um, If you're depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. And if you're at peace, you're living in the present. I think there's some wisdom there. It sounds a bit like a teaching from Jesus where he said, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, live in the moment. Eternity is in God's hands, not in yours. So you can't make one hair white or black by worrying about it, Jesus also said. So it seems the, the ancient oracle stumbled upon a truth. He also said, nature does not hurry, yet it accomplishes everything. If you're like me, you've probably discovered that thinking and anticipating worries the soul. I think the Lao Tzu was right about that. Thinking and anticipating worries the soul, and actually doing and accomplishing is soothing to the soul. Thinking tends to worry me, doing I find more comforting. It's been said that worrying is like praying for things that you don't want. And let me add just one more sage commentary to this. Henry David Thoreau, our own New England philosopher. I have to say this with a little inflection of voice, if you don't mind. Um, Happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it will elude you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and softly sit upon your shoulder. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) I just have no idea. Though he was an intellectual hero of my youth, I found that I esteem him less in my old age, far less. Aristotle, perhaps the greatest mind of pagan antiquity, had much to say about the subject. And what we may find particularly interesting is that his conclusions similar to Solomon's with regard to happiness. And so he believed that happiness was the ultimate end and purpose of human existence. Matthew Henry noted, it's a great human motivator. Do these things and you will be happy. A side note here, though, because here's Aristotle, right? He's the guy 
of the leisure class that they named the whole leisure class after, aristocrats, right? I've always found it interesting that the ancient leisure class took the time to ponder the depths of such things while the masses of ancient Greece toiled night and day to build the structures of civilization that could only be enjoyed by the leisure class. Because they bring up very often how contemplation and meditation produces happiness. Thinking deeply. Of course, when you're striving for bread or a handful of seed or meal, you don't have such liberty to do that. And certainly that was the case here. Nonetheless, Aristotle did come to some of the very same conclusions as the Proverbs of Solomon in that happiness for him was interwoven with virtue. And so he could say things like, happiness is not pleasure, nor is it virtue. It is the exercise of virtue. I would say that his conclusion is not so far from another verse from James, whose epistle has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. James said very famously, What do you want to know, O foolish man? Faith without works is dead. In other words, virtue not exercised cannot be realized. Good intentions are less virtuous than good deeds. You know, we tend to judge ourselves by our good intentions and our neighbors by their deeds. So the philosopher also understood what I think we should recognize as one of the same teachings as our text, and that is that happiness is not to be measured by a mere accumulation of things and experiences, although it seems to be part of it. Solomon talked about barns being filled with plenty. He talked about vats being full of new wine. I think perhaps American culture takes it too far. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker which reads, He who dies with the most toys wins? Have you ever seen that? I quote a bumper sticker a week, don't I? Usually a bumper sticker in a movie, but you know, it gets me in trouble because a lot of bumper stickers are real fine print, and I'm driving up on the rear end of the car trying to read it, trying, whoa! I'm too close to even see the brake light come on half the time. Um, But I'm just taken in by what people would put out there that their credo in life, I guess, that they've printed all over their, their vehicles or in this day, tattooed them all over their bodies. But he who dies with the most toys wins. Now, I have to say, that sentiment seems to me to be purely American. I hope the sentiment's tongue-in-cheek, but I don't think so. Do you? I think people really believe this. Now, how many times have you gone out and bought yourself something in the hope that a new thing, a new toy, would chase away the blues or put a smile on your face? Neither Solomon nor Aristotle would agree that happiness is based on an accumulation of desirable material things, though both philosophers recognize that a sufficiency of things does contribute to happiness. It's hard to be happy with nothing. And I think we can safely say that that's part of it, and God promises some blessings to aid you in the goal of being happy in the Lord. Neither teacher believes that true happiness is based on privation or a scarcity of necessary things. Now, there is a school of thought that privation and an ascetic life is the road to happiness. 
There's a great anecdote that comes out of ancient history. Alexander the Great has just gone on his path to conquer the world. And he did it, by the way. But he came into Corinth, where he achieved a great victory. And he wanted to hear from the great philosopher Diogenes. Do you know this story? Diogenes was the founder of the school of philosophy called Cynics. Diogenes was a cynic from the Cynic school of philosophy. And he believed in an ascetic life. He, would, he, he slept in a clay pot in the middle of the city. He was basically homeless, self-imposed homelessness. He would make fun of the teaching of Plato and Aristotle and other such men. And it was said that he would even go into their um, classrooms where they were teaching and where they were engaged in their dialogues and where everybody was riveted on the, on the uh, teachings of, of the great Plato. And he would sit there and bring out his lunch and start chomping it away vo- audibly just to disrupt the thing. So this was the kind of guy he was. But the ancient uh, anecdote goes like this. Alexander comes in on his great horse, Bucephalus, and, he, and he's with his guards with him, and he gets off the horse, and he goes up to the little tent where Diogenes is sitting and meditating in front of the tent, half naked, and he says, I am Alexander. That's how they talked in those days. He said, I am Alexander. Is there anything I can do for the great Diogenes? And Diogenes said, yes, you can step aside. You're blocking my son. Is the man that could have given him everything, anything he wanted. He admired him greatly. But Diogenes, who was maybe not so wise as he thought, was certainly not a hypocrite. So I think we can conclude, though, that happiness includes abundance and that abundance of material goods is the product of human wisdom. It does not rely on them with some sort of mathematical precision, though, as though the smartest guys are always the richest. I'm sure we've all pondered the idea that today's multi-billionaire would probably be just as happy with one billion as he is with his multiple billions. But perhaps not. I mean, that's just a guess on my part. I haven't made my first billion yet. Solomon Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines, but I hardly believe that he had time to take pleasure in them all. In fact, though the king was surely proud of his harem, it must have been a very unhappy life for most of them. I would suggest to you there were members of, of his harem that he didn't even know. There's another aspect to the bumper sticker slogan on toys, though, and it's the aspect of competitive happiness. You see this in America. The idea of winning in the end as though acquiring is winning and happiness is a competitive sport that some people do better at than others, right? In other words, we may believe that we can only measure happiness by where we fall on the monetary scale as compared to our friends and neighbors. You've heard the, you've heard the, um, the expression, the grass is always greener in the other fellow's yard, right? It's not true with me. Um, I, have, I have the better lawn. But um, you could start to think, surely my neighbor is happier than I am. He has a bigger house, nicer cars, a greener lawn. So I'm happy. I'm just not as happy as my neighbor. This is a, I think this is a purely American phenomenon. 
And so I must strive to outdo my neighbor. There's even the notion that if I lie about my resources, if I misrepresent the deal I got on my car, or if I can somehow get him to believe that my material situation is better than his, I'll be happier. In other words, it makes me happy to know that he thinks I'm happier than I really am. What's that? Social media. (laughs) The point to remember with both teachers, Aristotle and Solomon, is that wisdom is the principal thing. The godless Aristotle was able to exercise God's gift of human reason and native intelligence to a similar degree as the man of God. However, there's a deficit that the Christian must recognize at the outset. And that is that happiness as the byproduct of godly wisdom cannot possibly reach its fullest potential apart from recognizing the source of it. The difference between the pagan and the Christian philosopher, though both may be said to be very wise, is that one is wise in his own eyes and the other knows from whom his wisdom emanates. And if you want to know the truth, the wisdom of the godless comes from God as well. If it's true wisdom. You've heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth. Some men stumble upon it and don't know the source. Hence the teaching that says, in all your ways acknowledge him. Right? I'd like to point out another aspect that's surely connected with the happiness that the prophet speaks about. And it's less connected with moments and experiences than it is with the totality of a life virtuously lived for God. In other words, Solomon is saying that, and Aristotle agrees, that true happiness cannot be measured or perhaps even known until the end of one's life, and not so much at the beginning or along the way. Now that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Solomon's Meditations from Ecclesiastes gives each one of us food for thought here. He wrote this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. He goes on, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that's the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better, he writes. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And then he gives this conclusion. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of of fools. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm confused by this. I have never really worked this out satisfactorily to my own understanding. And so I don't claim to make complete sense of these meditations, and I do find it difficult to weigh them against other teachings in Scripture. But I think that the prophet's sense here is to note that life gets long. You know, we always say, oh, life is so short. But sometimes, when you're going through a long illness, let's say, I remember being in the hospital and saying, how long, oh Lord, how long will this go on? Life gets long, and it comes with a variety of emotions and experiences, but in all of them, God is present. And in all of them, it behooves the saint to seek his will in everything and try to discern what it is he's saying to us in the moment. 
And so we read this also from Solomon. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has appointed one as well as the other. They're both in God's hands. All right, I gave you my bumper sticker illustration. Now I have to give you my Braveheart illustration. Who's seen the movie? Come on, I bring up these things. I don't know, even know who's with me on these things. That's it. All right, your assignment tonight. <laughs> Braveheart is about, a, I think, a 13th century Scottish rebellion, a man named William Wallace, and they're fighting against the English, who they hate. All right? And um, the battle, one of the battles is over, and one of the great warriors, an older man, he's quite old. You know, in Alexander's army, there were very many men in their 60s, by the way. And they marched across continents together and slayed dragons. It's amazing what these guys did. But this old Scottish warrior is dying, and his full-grown son, who I'd say was in his 40s, is at his side. So let's say the guy's in his 60s, right? You know the story. Those of you that have seen it know, know where I'm going. But he's lying there, and he's in the, it's after the battle, and he's got an arrow in his chest. And someone comes over to help him, and they break it off, and of course he really hurts. And he's lying there bleeding, and he's lying there dying, and he knows he's dying. Now, of course, the son comes over, and he says, you're not going to die, you're going to live. <laughs> and so that's what he said. I, in fact, the first time I saw that, I didn't know what he said. I had to go back, and it was so heavily broked. But um, you're not going to die, you're going to live. And he begins to attend the wound, but the old warrior rejects the help. He knows he's dying. He says, leave me be. I'm a happy man. That's always amazed me. Now, I know it's a movie, but, pe- but these things really do happen in battle, right? And he's lying there. There's no doctor. And even if there was, who's going to heal him of an arrow in his heart, right? Pulling it out is probably worse than leaving it in. But he's lying there, and he says to the son, leave me be. I'm a happy man. And at that moment, his whole life becomes clear to him. The specter of death simplifies the quest for happiness. But he couldn't know this until this moment. And so you see, I'm trying to make sense of Solomon by this illustration. And we may find with him that it always resided in the simple things that were on hand all along. And so he assures the son that he's content with his lot. He's content to die. And I find the use of the word happiness profound in this sense. He says, I've lived long enough to live free and proud and to see you become the man you have become. It could be that simple, friends. You know, I also remember, and I use my own uh, hospital experiences to illustrate these things at times. But I remember in 2006, some of you were with us then, I was in the hospital, it got very complicated. I had a heart valve put in and they had to operate four times in one day. It was going bad. It looked like I wasn't going to make it through at times. And I still have you tell me this because I was, of course, in a coma and you people are still telling me things. My wife's still reminding me of things that happened that I didn't live through. But... um, I was thinking on the way, on the weeks previous to that, I was thinking about how difficult life was and how unhappy it really made me. Things like um, 
having too much debt. I had a business. We were overwhelmed. It was, um, uh, we were heading into a bad time. We didn't know if we'd make it through. There were all kinds of things I could be, I could be unhappy about, the stresses of life. And there I was, lying on that bed, not knowing if I was going to get up again. And a month later, I did. But um, I actually pleaded to God, Lord, give me back all my old problems. I would be very happy to have them back. And it was something that you can't learn without that, I think. And when I find myself not celebrating the simple things that God has given us that should make us happy. And you know how you know you're happy? You're grateful. And you know how you know you're unhappy? You're ungrateful. You've got to add gratitude to this. So I lied there and said, Lord, I was sinful in my thoughts and I didn't regard your gifts for the greatness that they were. And he brought me out of it. I've lived long enough to live free and proud and to see you become the man you have become. You know, Joseph was nine years old when that was happening. I didn't see him become a man yet. And I'm glad that I've had the opportunity. And so it's enough for the old warrior. (laughs) And his assessment of his life seems so very Pauline, if you will. Remember what Paul wrote? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so he develops the notion eloquently to the, Philippine, uh, to the Philippians. rather. Paul wrote, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Sometimes we think I have to have all my needs met. You know what? Some of us have too many needs. Maybe your needs aren't needs. He says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there's a distinct sense here that he's not saying, he's not saying I was um, happy in the times of plenty and, and unhappy in the times of need. He's saying I'm the same man in both. I've learned how to endure both and still be in Christ. If we're careful to discern the secret ingredient in the words of these men, we may stumble upon what is perhaps the greatest secret, secret rather, to genuine happiness, and it is gratitude. Friends, I know we have problems, some serious problems, right? You know, I'm beginning to wonder why we consider sickness and death so great a tragedy when we know it's ahead of us all, you know? Um, But I do understand because of our human condition that it's it's always best and we always feel best when we feel good and when we perhaps feel a little invincible remember being young enough to feel invincible i used to laugh at people with back pain (laughs) not really laugh at them but i would it seemed like everyone had back pain but i was young and strong and had a strong back i could do anything with it until one day i couldn't No, gratitude, friends. Paul said very succinctly again to the Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything give thanks. Friends, God is no respecter of persons. In other words, the rich don't get to be happy at the expense of the poor. That's never been how he worked, right? His blessings are available to all. They're available because they are the simple things of life. You remember when 
God came to Moses and he told him to go to Pharaoh and he told him to do all these things and the plagues and all these things. And Moses said, how will he know I came from God? I need to do some wonder. And he said, what's that in your hand? And he said, it's a staff. He said, throw it down. It became the snake, remember? It became the, the cobra, I believe. And um, well, that's what God's saying to you. Yeah, everything's not perfect. Your ducks are in a row. I remember when I didn't have any ducks. I couldn't get them in a row. They were non-existent. But uh, you have something in your hand that, God, that God's given you. And gratitude can, can multiply that into a great blessing. Now, if you remember, Jesus fed the 5,000. I pointed this to you before. If you go to John's version of that incident, you'll find that the, that the Lord took the, the fish and the loaves, which were clearly not enough to feed the thousands of people, and he gave thanks for them. And then they multiplied. Sometimes gratitude precedes the gift because it's given in faith with understanding. With understanding that God wants his people fed. He led them out to the wilderness and he intends to feed them. His blessings are available to all friends. They're available because of the simple things of life. Again, Solomon wrote, nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. It seems there's an element of election here. Happiness is God's gift to bestow upon whom he chooses. So if you have it, be thankful. If you don't have it, know this. Holiness will precede happiness and not the other way around. You know, your happiness will never make you holy. But your holiness will make you happy. It's an end in itself. It's like the philosopher said, it's something in your hand. The ancients stumbled upon a great truth. Virtue precedes real contentment. Wisdom precedes virtue. And so we read, happy is the man who finds wisdom, And the man who gains understanding, for her proceeds are better than profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who retain her. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would bestow wisdom upon your people and that we would grow in it and that we would know the joy of the Lord and that the joy of the Lord is indeed our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.